When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Yesterday, big pharmaceutical companies were grilled by Senate lawmakers about the exorbitant cost of many drugs. A partial solution to that problem would be repurposing, using existing drugs in new ways. But the industry and governments have to get the incentives right. And in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's extremely important that the dead are adequately mourned, with days of crying and wailing. That creates an odd market opportunity. Mourners for hire. But first... Statement, the Prime Minister. There would be chaos if the United Kingdom were to crash out of the European Union without a proper divorce deal. But after months of widespread worry about that no-deal Brexit, it seems to have been avoided. For now, anyway. With permission, Mr. Speaker, I would like to make a statement on the government's work to secure a withdrawal agreement that can command the support of this House. The deadline to agree a deal with the EU is in just over a month. Prime Minister Theresa May has told parliamentarians that if they don't vote in favour of the agreement she's already negotiated, she will empower them to vote for a delay to Brexit. So the United Kingdom will only leave without a deal on the 29th of March if there is explicit consent in the House for that outcome. Avoiding a no-deal scenario is one of the few aspects of Brexit for which there is a strong parliamentary majority. That is not the case for Mrs May's own deal, which she's still pushing to get through. What's happening in this country at the moment is that the government is losing control of events. Power is slipping away from the Prime Minister. Nobody quite knows where that power is going. Adrian Waldridge writes Badgett, our column about British politics. He was in the House of Commons for Mrs May's announcement. That morning, she came to the House of Commons straight away from a cabinet meeting, which had been a very tense cabinet meeting, in which a number of members of her cabinet confronted her and said, you must extend, you must take no deal off the table. It mustn't be the case that we'll be allowed to crash out of the EU without a deal. And that had always been part of her negotiating position. So taking that off the table was a huge embarrassment and reduction of her power. So power is slipping away from the prime minister. So where does this leave the, the, the timetable as we understand it? What happens next? Well, there are two things going on in, in the Commons at the moment. I mean, the atmosphere is electric. The atmosphere is is fervid. People are in an extreme state of high political frenzy. Tying the government's hands by seeking to commandeer the order paper would have would have far. This is rather discourteous. The Prime Minister is delivering a statement, and it should be heard. And colleagues know. I understand the strong feelings. Colleagues know from the record that everybody will get the chance. But there are two things going on as Mrs uh, May made her speech. Chaos, on the one hand, and calculation, on the other hand. People are trying to say, 
what does this really mean? And I could see the members of the European research group, the hardliners, they were all in a little clump, all discussing as she was speaking, what do we do about this? What does it mean? So that everybody was trying to think, what does it mean? mean? Now, what does it mean? What she promised was that there will be votes on March the 12th. You will vote on Mrs May's deal. It failed last time by 230 votes. It's very difficult to turn that around. On the 13th, there will be a vote on whether to accept no deal. That will almost certainly go through. There is a majority in the House against no deal. Then on the 14th, whether to apply for an extension to the leaving day, Brexit day, March the 29th, I think that would command a majority in the House. So one of the important things that's happened this week is that Britain is unlikely to be leaving the European Union on Brexit Day, March the 29th. It'll be leaving two months perhaps after that. Whatever the length of the extension, if it comes to that, do we not find ourselves in this same position again close to that date? Absolutely, we do. And it does seem that we're gridlocked, that the sides are roughly the same size. They can't get a majority. And so that's probably the case. Both leaders have lost control of their parties or are losing control of their parties or are fighting desperately to keep control of their parties uh, against very powerful forces. And Theresa May can't control her cabinet. Uh, She can't control the lower ranks of her government and she can't control her party. And that's also being strangely mirrored on the Labour side where Jeremy Corbyn is also suffering from internal rebellions, very significant rebellions, and is desperately trying to reassert his control but at the expense of making very big concessions to his critics. Amid all this, the Labour Party dropped its own Brexit bombshell. Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, has said if Labour's own Brexit withdrawal plan is rejected in a vote today, he'll throw his weight behind a public vote, a second referendum. Mr Corbyn is still smarting from the resignation of nine MPs last week. They left the party in frustration at its Brexit strategy and its failure to tackle anti-Semitism. On the face of it, Labour has switched position to be in support of a second referendum. But that would only happen after Mrs May's deal passes in Parliament. And McElvoy, a senior editor at The Economist and one of our chief Brexitologists, is sceptical that Mr Corbyn's announcement has much substance. Jeremy Corbyn moved his party position this week towards a second referendum. Quite clearly, his shadow Brexit secretary said that Remain would be on the ballot paper, which is the, the big question for a lot of people who want this. However, that's not a commitment that we've yet heard unambiguously from Jeremy Corbyn himself. So, OK, to, to your mind, then, what's materially changed? I mean, should we consider this week as uh, the week that the, the prospects for a second referendum really changed? I think we should consider it as a week when the Labour Party was no longer able to straddle the positions as ably as it had done heretofore. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really want a second referendum. He wants a general election. He's said it over and over again. But he has conceded that the emotion in his party, particularly with this breakaway group in mind, that they want to hear the word second referendum from him. So you could see things moving gently in that direction. Unfortunately, he hasn't spelt out whether it's the second referendum that most people mean, which is the one that says, are we going or are we staying? Does the outcome of all this, does the outcome for Brexit matter beyond that or is this just damage control by two party leaders? I think it's two party leaders discovering the hard way that Brexit is a powerful fragmentation of what they considered to be their power base. So in Labour, you're finding a leader 
from the left of the party who was trying to build a big sort of momentum, as he calls his movement, sweeping away the Conservative government, is also finding that he has difficulties to unite his party around the Brexit question. On the Conservative side, you have a Prime Minister who's doubled down on getting a deal with the EU and eventually getting her stubborn, really hardcore Eurosceptics on board and finding that process much harder. That super glue is not sticking. It's not so sticky on the other side either. Two leaders, two very different views, same fundamental problem. And thanks for helping us try to make sense of it, at least. I'm pleased you keep having me back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Last year, America's Food and Drug Administration approved 59 new drugs, a record number. But as well as finding novel pharmaceuticals, a lot of scientists think there's another way to discover even more new treatments without designing a single new molecule. It's called drug repurposing. So drug repurposing is when you take a medicine that has an existing use in an existing disease and you find a new use for it. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. And one of the things that is very exciting is when you take medicines that are off patent and you uh, find a brand new use for them and you can provide a very cheap new medicine. The promise of cheap, effective new uses for drugs has sparked hope among people seeking new cures for disease. I guess my interest started because my son had cancer. He had um, three cancers in his lifetime. And for his last cancer, he had a, a, a type of bone tumor called an osteosarcoma, which didn't respond to standard therapies. That's Pan Panziarka. While caring for his son, George, he started looking for other forms of treatment and discovered there were scientists studying the use of non-cancer drugs in cancer therapy. Unfortunately, we were not able to get any of those treatments for my son who passed away in 2011. But following that experience, I decided that was an area that, that needed more work and, and it was something that I, I put some energy into. Mr. Panziarka now runs a non-profit called the Anti-Cancer Fund, devoted to finding new ways of using medicine that's already out there. Scientists have already found some new uses for old drugs. Well, one of the most famous is the drug uh, thalidomide, which is now used these days in leprosy and in multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer. But there are lots of others. Viagra uh, famously was a repurposed drug. It came from work in angina. And then Johnson & Johnson are developing a, a new drug, which is really based on ketamine, which is, has been repurposed in uh, treatment-resistant depression. Right. And, and what's the sort of the, the scope of the promise here? Is there is the notion that there's loads of diseases that could be handled by existing drugs? So people who work in drug repurposing say that the scope is vast and there are thousands of generic drugs which could have potential for treating other diseases. There's an anti-cancer charity that 
says that they've identified more than 260 non-cancer drugs that, that do have evidence of activity in cancer. So, you know, the scale of the opportunity is quite large, and especially as we become more sophisticated in the way we, you know, identify possible molecules of interest, say, with artificial intelligence, I think we we shouldn't be surprised to find that the number of of leads, of good, promising leads, are much larger than our capacity is to to test them all. So how does that actually work? If there are thousands of these drugs and thousands of maladies, how does, how does one of these drugs reveal itself as good for one of those illnesses? There are lots of ways of doing it. One way is you can screen libraries of generic medicines to look for molecules that look like they might be good at the particular target you're looking for in disease. Other ways are really... You can see in epidemiological data, you can sometimes see the effect of drugs. One example was uh, was an insurance database in Taiwan, which found a sort of 76% reduction in the risk of TB among the patients who had been taking a drug called metformin for their diabetes. And so those sorts of signals tell you that you're having a sort of biological impact. And all of these cases, whether you identify the molecule from some kind of screening or whether you identify it from sort of epidemiological data, you still need to kind of go on and then do what's, you know, essentially a phase three randomized clinical trial to sort of test whether that particular drug does have the effect that you suspect that it does. So this all sounds incredibly promising, but we haven't heard much about it. Why is that? Well, the big problem with generic drugs is that essentially they're financial orphans. There's no patent, no IP attached. No patent, no no IP, no intellectual property, i.e. no money in it. Yes. And so if you're an investor and you, you want to invest in drug development, you want something that you can protect, basically. And that's what a patent allows you to do. It allows you to say, well, I own this particular molecule and when it gets approved, you can sell that molecule and make a lot of money. If you have a generic medicine, the problem is is that anyone who discovers a new use for it doesn't have necessarily the exclusive right to sell it. Um, and anyone can make a generic medicine. And so there are some challenges in the sort of financing of drug repurposing of generic drugs. If the financial incentives aren't clear, what could change about the system so that basically what ought to happen happens? I think governments need to be a little bit more supportive of efforts to do repurposing of generic drugs. I mean, if you think about, you know, the complaints that governments have often about the prices of modern pharmaceuticals, you know, they're constantly complaining that they're too expensive. And the pharmaceutical companies are saying, well, they, they're expensive to develop. And then if you look at the amount of money that is used to support um, repurposing of generic drugs, it just isn't there. I mean, you know, governments are very happy to support drug development efforts with tax breaks and grants, all sorts of things like that. But, you know, the sort of generic repurposing endeavors are really sort of a, a sort of afterthought um, and not really supported at all. So, I mean, there's a number of things governments could do. One of the things is they could offer grants to support generic drug repurposing. Another really interesting idea is some kind of social bond, uh, social investment bond. And the idea here is that the government or the public health service would would essentially reward drugs that were successfully uh, repurposed. So say, 
you know, say the, the NHS in the UK had a whole bunch of diseases that were really expensive to treat. And they might say to investors, well, do you know, if you get some new drugs, new generic drugs approved in these indications, we'll offer some kind of financial reward. And that would incentivize investors to actually put these drugs through their paces in trials and get them approved. So there's a couple of ideas, but there's, there's, there are many ways that governments can and do incentivize drug development. It's just not in generic repurposing. And you have to sort of ask the question, well, you know, if you want access to a wider and broader and cheaper medical toolkit, how are you going to make this happen when the pharma companies are saying it costs them a couple of billion a pop to develop a new drug? And so governments really do have to look at generic medicines and say, well, you know, can we, can we make more use of what we have? Thanks for your time, Natasha. Thank you, Jason. Sally Krawcheck was a banking executive at Merrill Lynch before she started her own women's investment platform. At the Economist's Investing for Impact Summit earlier this month, she told Vijay Vethiswaran, our U.S. business editor, how her mind changed about ethical investment. I've turned down meetings with impact investors. I, you know, if you had worked your way into my office when I was running Merrill or Smith Barney and said, you know, I'm here to talk about social impact, I would have said, you know, you're a granola eater, tree hugger. Right. You know, so I was all the way with old Wall Street. But things changed over time, and I have become passionate about gender lens investing. The power of diversity is so substantial that more diverse teams outperform smarter teams. And by the way, I get it. I'm an analyst, right? You know, maybe it's causation, maybe it's correlation, maybe it's coincidence, but it's a hell of a coincidence. There is research that shows that guys, and by the way, I love middle-aged white guys. I love dogs. I've been married to a couple of them. I think y'all <laughs> are like these incredible, my husband is the whitest man you will ever meet. He's practically transparent. He's so white. Um, so this is not about excluding any group. It's about including another. But there's research that men tend to show off for each other in competitive situations. I think some of us can imagine that happening. And there's research that shows that there is a correlation between testosterone levels and poor risk-taking. Right. To hear more from Ms. Krawcheck, download Money Talks, The Economist's business and finance podcast, available wherever you listen. So here in Goma, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, I recently attended a job interview of an old lady called Deborah. Olivia Ackland reports from Congo for The Economist. She was sort of speaking very slowly and deliberately, and her hands were clasped tightly together, and she was blinking a lot. She was nervous. And halfway through the interview, the interviewer said, OK, so now we've arrived at the practical parts. And Deborah left the room and came back in crying. And threw herself on the ground and started thumping the ground and screaming and wailing. Her body was convulsing with sobs. And, uh, and she sort of looked to the heavens and shouted, Bettina, Bettina, why did you leave us? Bettina, why did you leave your children behind? What, what exactly was this job? Deborah was applying for a job as a paid mourner. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, you have these groups of women who turn up to funerals and cry over the corpse, and they're paid to do so. In the capital city in Kinshasa, it's already quite a well-established business. It's not so well known in the east of the country, which is where I am in Goma. And so I met this entrepreneur. 
who was trying to bring the business to the east of the country. And he was recruiting women so that he can start a group of pleureuses, as they're called, or criers. He's hoping to have the monopoly on the market. Well, why are people in the market for, for paid mourners in the first place? So these ostentatious shows of grief at somebody's funeral are important in Congo, as there's a commonly held belief that the person who's died can be watching you after they've died. So this is what Deborah told me, that the deceased could watch the funeral like a film, they could watch the living like a film, and if they're not happy with an adequate display of grief, they could come back and cause problems for their living relatives. The other thing that Deborah told me was that the crying is infectious. And so if you're a woman and you're unable to cry because you're exhausted after all of the funeral preparations, it can look very bad. And people might even start to think that you're in some way responsible for the person's death through witchcraft or through black magic. And so part of the function of the paid mourners is to elicit tears in the others at the funeral. And so what was the, the reaction then to, to Deborah's wailing audition? It was actually quite moving. The, the female interviewer was, uh, had tears in her eyes, and, um, which clearly meant that Deborah had done a good job. Um, I, was, I was a little moved myself. And so she got the job? And so she got the job, yes. And how do people end up in this profession? So people get into the mourning business mostly for financial reasons. Deborah was asked in her job interview why she wanted to do the job. <laughs> and she was quite honest and said that she was inspired by the money. And then she pointed, she was wearing this very colorful wax dress and she pointed to her dress and said, not anyone can afford to buy a wax like this. As a paid mourner, on a daily basis, you might make $30 a day. Or if you're hard for a week, you would make about $150 a week. And that's a lot of money in a country where, for example, a primary school teacher is paid an average of $150 to $200 a month. So basically the clients are wealthy people. It's mostly politicians and businessmen who can afford to have this kind of service. To hire 10 women for a week, you'd pay around $1,500. And the women would start crying from the moment the body is taken out of the morgue until the end of the funeral party, which could be a full week, a full week of sobbing. And so do they get training in doing this? How do they manage to, to keep the crying up over the course of a whole week? So Deborah said that you actually cry on rotation because it's quite tiring to cry for the entire week. But she also says it's easy to cry, it's easy for the tears to come. Because we're in a very poor country. I mean, 77% of the population survive on less than $2 a day. And she says, you know, your mind is always turning, thinking, where can I find money? And that makes you sad and it's easy to cry. And then the other thing to bear in mind is that we're in Goma, we're in the east of the Congo, which is a part of the country which has been ravaged by sort of raping armed militia for more than two decades. And so there's a lot of suffering and a lot of latent pain that's easy to tap into. Olivia, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. 
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.